HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? All right. How are you doing? Uh, my name is Jonas Kaplan. I'm a neuroscientist from the University of Southern California. And I'm going to be talking to you about the brain and food. But before I do that, we're going to do a little activity. So uh, in front of you, you're going to find a little purple uh, sleeve with six cards in it. And I want you to go ahead and slide those six cards out. And we're going to start this activity off. On each card is a statement. What I want you to do is to read each statement. You can take your time reading it and considering it. We're going to have a few minutes for this. And as you consider each statement, I want you to think about whether or not you believe that statement and how strongly you believe it. And what you're going to do is on the back of the card, there's a little box labeled A. And on the back of the card, I want you to you're going to rate how true you think that statement is. This is the scale you're going to use, a scale from 1 to 5, where 1 is completely false and 5 is completely true. Okay. So hopefully you've had a chance to read through those cards and to rate how strong you believe them. Now, I want you to open the envelope that says, don't open this until you're instructed. You're now being instructed. It's safe to open that. <laughs> On that, in that envelope is some new information about each of the statements that you just rated. And so what I want you to do now is to review the information on each one of these cards. And as you do, you can discuss this information with your table mates. This new information may change the way that you think about those statements. So read them carefully and with an open mind. Uh, there's six different statements that you're reading information about. And so we're going to give you about three minutes on each one. I'm going to remind you when three minutes has passed to encourage you to move on to the next one to make sure that you get through them all. So go ahead and review the information on those cards and discuss it with the people at your table if you desire. As you review each of the statements, I want you to re-rate each of the original beliefs, okay? So on the uh, back, on the front of the card where there's a box for B, you're going to rate on a scale of 1 to 5, again, how strongly you believe after you read the information.
All right, thank you for doing this. Can I have your attention again up here? So after the conference, we're going to tally up the numbers, and we're going to collect the real hard scientific data on what you guys did. Uh, but for now, I want to get a sense of uh, how this was for you. And so I'm going to ask for a show of hands. And what I want to know for each of these statements, we'll go through them one by one, is I want to know if the information that you read changed your mind at all. And that means that your rating of the strength of your belief after reading the information was lower than it was before the information. Okay? So for the statement, overpopulation is a serious global concern. How many people softened their belief on that one? Okay, interesting. A few. On the whole, GMOs are better for the environment. How many people changed their mind on that one? Wow, very few, interesting. A vegan diet is the most sustainable way of eating. How many people changed their minds on that one? A handful, okay. Uh, SNAP, the food stamp program, benefits, uh, SNAP benefits offer necessary help to the poor. How many changed their minds on that? Okay. Most people decide what to eat based on how it tastes. All right, we did okay with that one. People tend to feel the most trust for those who are most like them, racially, culturally, economically, etc. Anyone change their minds on that one? Well, a lot. Okay. Uh, and those were the six. Okay, thank you. Uh, so uh, now I'd like to hear a little bit about what your experience was like doing this. And if anybody wants to share what their experience was like, we're going to have some microphones around. And I'd like you to just tell us uh, what this was like. What did it feel like when you were reading this information? What was going through your head? What were the discussions at your table like? Why did you change your mind if you changed your mind? And why did you not change your mind if you didn't? Does anybody have an experience to share? Uh, the, the microphone's right behind you. If you could say that again, please. I think we have a bunch of informed cynics at this table. Um, we were questioning where the facts came from and you know, just sort of saying facts on the other side that some of us knew. So it was a very interesting conversation, but I think we didn't probably move the needle too much. Okay, fair enough. Anybody else? Over here at the table 10. We had the exact same thing. And we hypothesized that you were going to tell us everything written on the cards was fake. And so that we would all have to eat our words on how we justified changing our minds. Everyone is so suspicious of scientists. <laughs> we were not doing that at all. Everything on the cards was true to our knowledge. Um, I think we had the similar reaction at our table. Um, facts without attribution are very mm -hmm. difficult to get on board with. And a lot of us are experiencing news and media in a time where uh, the veracity of sources is being questioned all the time, so this exercise was really hard to get into at that level when we were lacking that attribution. Yeah. Uh, someone over there? I think for us, it, it depended on how much knowledge we had at the table, how many facts we had beyond what was on the card, and um, then we kind of looked at, especially the one on SNAP, as to exactly how you chose the information that went onto the card about that one. Maybe we had a different feeling about the information, whether we had facts exactly to go against it. It doesn't feel right to us. And of course, um, since I work at Monsanto, I, I have a very different feeling on the GMO mm -hmm. card. 
I'm, I'm glad you used the word feeling because I'm going to talk to you a lot today about feelings and how they influence our the process in this, uh, in this phenomenon. I found myself uh, on some of them, if I had a strong emotional feeling about the fact, I was much, much less likely to change my mind. Uh, that I read the facts with a, through a different lens than the ones where I felt a little bit less um, emotionally certain about what I felt. I found myself, I changed my mind on four out of the six items, okay. and, and not because I believe the facts necessarily, but it simply gave me pause to think about it in a different way. So I hadn't, I hadn't considered some of the things that were on the card. So and after thinking about it, I, I softened it in many cases. Oh, great. Very open-minded, four of the six. Yes. I felt like I was exhibit A for what the social scientists say about this all the time because when confronted with a list of facts that run contrary to what you believe, you say, but these are cherry-picked, but these sources aren't legitimate. And that, of course, is exactly the dynamic that keeps us believing the things that we believe. So I didn't change my mind about anything. <laughs> so I had something similar and building on what most people said. I think I was wrestling with the fact that I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe for some of the things. So even though when I read the card, I realized you know, it was off, I still wanted to believe what I wanted to believe. I just, I, I feel like our table is echoing what, what everyone said here. Especially, you know, the snap card, I'm, it's almost, you know, what, it, what do you, you this, where are these facts from? And then also, there was also good dialogue about um, the fact that the statements themselves, that, that was a question that kept coming up. That I thought was very good. The statements themselves, not just the facts that were given, but the statements themselves. What do you mean by overpopulation is a concern? Define concern, define snap benefits. Personally, I, I, I agreed with the people tend to agree statement with, with people, but then I changed it when I saw the facts where it says, no, people listen to wealthy people more and will believe anything they say, kind of based on what happened last year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so last November, so anyway. So anyway. What, what role did the conversations at the tables play? Was anybody convinced uh, to change their mind or to not change their mind by what somebody else said rather than what was on the card? Hi, um, I think I was more uh, convinced to change my mind or to soften my opinion by the opinions of my table mates, m many of which I, I know already and have some experience you know, uh, with and uh, considering them esteemed colleagues or esteemed people in the field, that's what gave me pause. Not the facts on the card so much, but the conversation. So I really appreciated beginning this way in a sense as a way to just sort of shake things up a little bit. I think all of the issues are so complicated and that's a point where there was a kind of a place for me to stop and say don't get into it at that level you can look that up later but how interesting <laughs> that people have different opinions and how strong they are in a sense so. one thing we were talking about was how easy it is to find facts to support any argument so i would say most most of my answers just hovered right around three because it's like there's all kinds of data in the world and I bet you can find data to support anything, honestly, which makes it more difficult to have an informed opinion these days. Also, the, uh, these cards are kind of in a vacuum in that there seems to be only one variable and everything else stays the same. For example, in Japan, if uh, they're suffering because there are too few younger people to support older people, well, 
what about changing an economy so that you don't depend on younger people? Uh, you have a more distributed economy. Uh, and so that may be the problem. Uh, so it, 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 you only scrutinize one fact compared to a status quo rather than uh, realize there are about, there are a lot of ways to skin that cat. That's a good point, thank you. Anyone else have anything to add? Up here in the front. So much talk is given on GMOs and we're blessed to have a farmer who um, was just speaking about uh, the advantages of GMOs and how it's helping um, where he is from. So that was very eye-opening. Um, also beta carotene being put into rice for those who do not, don't have the nutrients in Africa was a, is an interesting side point to the GMO conversation. I'm also very grateful, however, that the SNAP question was put on there because that's a conversation that is in desperate need of more conversation um, based upon the information that was given here and also that, that we see in regards to food deserts within the communities that um, are using this program. All right, uh, thank you. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, it was really great to hear your responses to that exercise because a lot of the themes that I'm gonna talk about today are echoed in what you guys said about your experience. So hopefully this connects. Um, I wanna talk to you about the brain. I am a cognitive neuroscientist and I study how the brain works. Um, I do this with brain imaging and I am particularly interested in how the brain makes us who we are. And that involves looking into what's happening in the brain when we think about our deepest beliefs and values. Um, but I have to start with a confession, which is that I really know absolutely nothing about food. Uh, I, I actually have a reputation among my friends as having the least sophisticated palate of anybody in Los Angeles. It's embarrassing. When, when I told my wife I was gonna speak to the James Beard Food Summit, she said, do they, do they know? <laughs> and I said, I think I'm gonna have to tell them. Uh, so that's out of the way, now you know. I do know about the brain, and some of the things I know about the brain have connections to food, and so I'm gonna try and make those connections for you. So this activity that you did this morning is actually a recreation of a laboratory experiment that we ran at the Brain and Creativity Institute in uh, Los Angeles at the University of Southern California where I work. And we were studying how people respond to challenges that challenge their deeply held beliefs. And I'll explain why we did this and what the experiment shows in a little bit, but I wanna lay some groundwork by uh, telling you a few things about the nervous system and the way that it works. This is the brain. It's actually a little bit obnoxious to call that the brain because that's my brain. Uh, it's a really nice one though, you can tell, obviously. The brain has 100 billion neurons and each of those neurons has thousands of connections with other neurons, which makes this, this density of interconnections makes the brain the most complex object that we have discovered in the entire universe. And that's obviously amazing and reflects the great intelligence of the brain. But 
the intelligence of life is not restricted to these three pounds of flesh that are inside the head. We have to remember that the brain really is a sophisticated solution to the problem of how to keep an organism alive. And the intelligence of life is all throughout the body. The brain doesn't exist without its body. We think about all of the amazing things that the brain does, creating and understanding language, creating art and music, uh, developing theories about physics. It's easy to think of the brain as a computer and to get carried away with the metaphor of the brain as a computer. But the brain isn't just an abstract calculation machine. It's literally flesh and blood as part of a living body. We have to remember that. You can see in this picture here how the brain is really like the part of a tree that's above ground. And it has this subterranean root structure that you see here, which are the nerves that go throughout the body that gather information from the body about what's happening in the viscera, in the muscles, in the organs of the body, and carry it up to the brain. And also bring signals from the brain back down to the body. One of the regions that uh, has a surprising amount of complexity is actually in the gut, where there are thousands of neurons that line the entire digestive tract. Uh, it's uh, called the enteric nervous system. And it's a system that's so complex that some people have taken to calling it the second brain. So why do we have a second brain in our gut? Well, it's because of this role of the nervous system in regulating life and what we eat and eating well is so important for that, that we have this complicated system that regulates metabolism at the level of the organism. Now, one of the main nerves that carries information from the viscera up to the brain is called the vagus nerve. Vagus nerve is, uh, comes from the Latin word for wanderer. You can think of vagrant or vagabond because it wanders throughout the body. This is the vagus nerve here, and it makes connections with a whole bunch of the visceral organs, with the intestines, with the stomach, the liver, the lungs, the heart. And it takes all that information from the body and sends it back up to the brain, to one of the oldest parts of the brain up here. This is the brain stem. It's the very bottom of the brain. It gathers all this information from the, from the body. And from there, the uh, information actually travels up to another part of the brain that's called the insular cortex. The insula comes from another Latin word, the word for island, because it's a little island of brain kind of tucked in here in between the frontal and temporal lobes. You can't even really see it unless you take tongs like this and pull the lobes apart, which I don't recommend doing with your own brain. <laughs> so the insula is actually really interesting because it's kind of an interface between the old and the new has all these connections with the brain stem, but it also has connections with the newer parts of the brain, with regions like the prefrontal cortex, which are responsible for decision-making and planning and some of the most complex forms of our personality. So in its role as an integrator of information from the body, the insula helps to generate many of our so-called gut feelings. And its connections with the other parts of the cerebral cortex facilitate the incorporation of these feelings basically sensations from the body, into our more complex pro cognitive processes and decision-making strategies. So the term gut feelings is really a metaphor that's grounded in reality. For instance, you may have felt your heart racing when you think about an upcoming decision. Or who amongst us has not felt butterflies in their stomach as they're about to take the stage to speak to a food conference about the brain? 
one of the things that the insula seems to be really important for is the feeling of disgust. When we encounter something that the nervous system really doesn't want us to eat, we have this strong negative feeling that encourages us to avoid it. We feel sickened and nauseous and we recall, re recoil uh, from the source of our disgust. So you might feel this when you encounter rancid meat or somebody puts ketchup on a hot dog or <laughs> somebody cooks a steak too well done. The French biologist Francois Jacob famously said that nature is a tinkerer, not an inventor. And this is really true. When a new problem comes along in evolution, instead of inventing a solution out of whole cloth, life uses what it has. And since the brain has this very old, very effective system for turning us away, turning us away from things that it deems unhealthy, this valuable tool doesn't only get pulled out of the toolbox when it comes to food. It gets used in other similar circumstances as well. It turns out one of these similar problems has to do with our firmly held beliefs. So I'm going to tell you about the study we conducted now at the Brain and Creativity Institute, where we wanted to know what happens in the brain when people have their deeply held beliefs challenged. What happens when we encounter evidence that confronts our cherished beliefs? And so to do this, we had to find a population and a set of beliefs that we knew would be really difficult to change. And so we turned to one of our locally grown products, and we used political liberals. <laughs> we started with a set of political beliefs that these people believed very, very strongly. Things like taxes on the wealthy should be increased. And the war on terror has been an ineffective response to the events of 9-11. And we also had another set of beliefs that these people claimed to believe just as strongly but weren't political in nature. Things like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb or fluoride helps prevent tooth decay. And then we put them inside an fMRI scanner to measure their brain activity. So the way the fMRI scanner works is we use this little uh, fact of physics, which is that the molecule that carries oxygen in our blood, hemoglobin, has a different magnetic signature when it's carrying the oxygen compared to when it doesn't. And the neurons that are very active when they start to fire a lot, they call for increased oxygen because they need it. And so we can measure these changes in blood oxygenation with MRI, and we can infer where the changes in brain activity are. So we put people in the fMRI scanner with these strong beliefs, and we present them evidence against their beliefs, very similar to what you guys did this morning. So for example, we told them that uh, Humphrey Davies demonstrated an electric lamp to the Royal Society 70 years before Edison, or how Edison's patent on the electric light was actually invalidated by the US Patent Office, who found that it was based on the work of a prior inventor. After they read these counterarguments, we asked them to rate their belief strength on a scale of one to seven, just like you did this morning, where one is totally disbelieve and seven is strongly believe. So we could see to what degree, if any, we changed their minds. As we expected, it was easier to change people's minds on some topics than on others. This graph actually shows how much belief change we found for each of the topics, where a bigger bar means people change their minds more. So, uh, poor Thomas Edison here over in the corner was easily dismantled. <laughs> but people weren't going to budge on things like abortion and gay marriage and immigration. This largely fell along the categorical lines of political, which is in green, versus non-political, which is in blue. So this graph here shows uh, the belief strength before and after for the political and non-political beliefs. The before is in dark purple and the after is in light purple. The political beliefs on the left, you can see people softened maybe a little bit, but not very much. But in the non-political beliefs, we were able to soften people's beliefs considerably. 
And this really isn't surprising. You have to remember that for these people that we chose, their political identity was very important to them. Their political beliefs were important to who they are and formed uh, part of their social identity, meaning that these are beliefs that connect them to their friends and family. Uh, when people came out of the experiment, they often said things like, I can't really change my mind about taxes. How would I explain that to my friends? That's actually a very important factor in this. Uh, so after the experiment, we were able to compare what was happening in the brain when people considered these challenges to their political beliefs compared to their non-political beliefs. And what you see here is the brain, and in bright yellow and orange are the regions of the brain that were significantly more active when people were considering these challenges to their political beliefs compared to their non-political beliefs. The brain regions that are activated here form a network. They're an interconnected set of structures in the brain that we call the default mode network. We're still understanding exactly what this network does, um, but we do know that it tends to be engaged when we think about ourselves and who we are. And we have some evidence that it's also engaged by stories, narratives that help tie together complex information and allow us to organize meaning about the world. We then looked at all the different people in our experiment, and we looked for things that correlated with how much people changed their minds. So some people were flexible and changed their minds a lot in general, and other people were more stubborn. And we looked at these key emotional regions in the brain. Uh, maybe you recognize this one here on the left, oops, as the infilla. Gotta be a way to go back, there we go. Um, oops, I keep pressing the wrong button. I have a belief to change about which button works here. Okay, there we go, the insula. So the insular cortex in blue is on the left. This structure here on the right in pink is the amygdala. The amygdala is another important brain st structure for emotion. It seems to be important for recognizing emotionally salient stimuli in the environment, particularly response to things that pose a threat to us. And what we found is that activity in these structures correlated with belief change, meaning that the people who were most resistant to changing their minds had the most activity in these structures while they were considering the challenges to their beliefs. So the insular cortex, a brain region originally concerned with monitoring the internal state of the body and doing things like notifying us when we're about to eat rancid meat, is now helping us to make decisions not only about what kind of food to ingest, but also about what kind of information to ingest. So this kind of research shows us that trying to separate emotion from cognition is a totally artificial thing to do. We aren't computers, we're bodies. And how we feel is always deeply intertwined with how we think and how we decide. And it really should be. It's part of the intelligence of the body that life has given us through billions of years of trial and error. But what's interesting is that the boundaries of the self that this system is trying to protect now no longer end just at the skin. They also include the psychological self, the parts of my mind that my brain considers to be me and some beliefs fall within that protective circle. So decisions about what we believe about GMOs or sustainable agriculture can quite literally be rooted in how we feel in our gut. And changing these beliefs can be like changing a load-bearing beam in your house. It's not simply a matter of changing out one piece of wood because so many other structures are built on it. I recently met a man who worked in politics and he was a um, right-wing uh, conservative for a very long time. He worked in the Reagan and Bush administrations. And over the course of a few years, he changed his mind about his political beliefs and he became a liberal Democrat. 
And as a consequence of doing this, he lost his job. Uh, he could no longer work with the people he was working with. And he lost many of his friends and almost his significant other as well. So there's a, a high social cost to changing these things very often. If you think back to the exercise that you did this morning, where we challenged some of your beliefs, and you think about how it felt to have those beliefs challenged, and think about whether it felt differently to challenge a belief that was important to you versus a belief that wasn't important to you, you'll get a sense of what this is about. So often when people hear about our research, the first question they ask is, okay, so how do we actually change people's minds? How do we influence people on topics where the truth really matters, but information doesn't penetrate? This is actually a very important question that often has uh, important consequences. So just as an example, a few years ago, the Hollywood Reporter did a, an investigation of vaccination rates on the west side of Los Angeles, where I live. And these are vaccinations for diseases that are now preventable, like pertussis. And at some of these elementary schools, the vaccination rate, which these schools at the time, the law allowed, parent, allowed parents to opt out of vaccination for their children, it's since changed. Uh, the vaccination rates were sometimes as low as 20% in some of these schools. That's worse than in developing nations like South Sudan. And this is solely because of beliefs that are difficult to change. And there's research showing that even if you give people information, you tell them that, okay, all the scientific evidence disproves the fact that vaccines cause autism, for example. The original studies have been discredited and retracted and people have lost their uh, medical licenses for saying these things. Sometimes it actually makes people's beliefs stronger because when they marshal their defenses against these attacks, they double down and their belief ends up being stronger. So I don't actually have any good answers for you, unfortunately, but I actually like to think of this problem the other way around. Instead of how we can influence people, what can we do for ourselves to keep ourselves open-minded, to allow ourselves to remain flexible in our beliefs in situations where we should be flexible? And I think the answer here really comes down to a form of mindfulness. First of all, being mindful of how we feel when we're challenged and how these feelings influence our thinking. To be mindful that some beliefs will oblige us to ignore evidence. And these beliefs don't have to be about things like religion or politics, they can be about anything. They can be about food. As long as you invite one of these beliefs into the protected circle of selfhood, where your body will then marshal all of its defenses to protect that, you've got the same problem. So to be mindful how as much as our beliefs can connect us to other people, they can also separate us from other people. And maybe to think twice before we invite one of these beliefs inside of us, because like a house guest, it can be easier to invite one in than to get rid of it. <laughs> so maybe that's the beginning of an answer of how we can keep our brains open so that our brain can change its mind. Thank you. Thank you, Jonas. I guess the question is, do we believe you, really? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name is Mitchell Davis. I'm the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation. And on behalf of everybody at the foundation, from our trustees to our president, Susan Nguero, to our staff, it's a real sincere pleasure to welcome you today to our ninth annual James Beard Foundation Food Summit. Can I see a show of hands of those who've been with us sometime before at one of these gatherings? Great. 
Great. Well, welcome back. Thank you for returning. We hope you're here because you know we'll expand the way you think about the work you do and inspire you uh, when you leave uh, to do your work, to be more effective, to do your work perhaps with a different perspective. To those of you who are new and actually to those of you watching on live stream, welcome. We're excited to have you as part of this conversation, really as part of this community of thinkers, of doers, uh, people trying to make our food system more sustainable, more wholesome, and more delicious and more equitable which is part of our mission at the Beard Foundation. Um, I think as Jonas really proves at the JBF Food Summit, we pride ourselves on trying to think about things outside of the bread box, if you will. Uh, we left last year's summit uh, thinking about the food movement, asking ourselves whether or not we would be able to cohere the various actions and accomplishments happening across the food spectrum into some sort of movement towards something important. You might recall if you were with us, uh, Evan Wolfson, who's the founder of the Freedom to Marry Coalition and the architect, really, of the same-sex marriage movement. Interesting to see that on the slide, so strongly held. Cautioned us that although for nearly 40 years they had a very clear vision and they kept their focus on a specific goal, most of the time their movement was much more of a muddle, to use his word. Uh, the movement came looking back. So the question before us really in thinking about this year was what to do with this muddle that is food. What is our goal and how can we achieve it? So much has changed since last October, obviously. Whether the most important or the longest lasting change will come from the new administration or maybe from Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods, only time will really tell. But what hasn't changed is our desire that, that we know to be true for people to have access to fresh, healthful, delicious food to feed themselves, to feed their families, and to feed their friends. That's why this year we decided to buckle down on those people, the individuals, to understand American consumers and the role they play in this muddle of a movement. Politics aside, and you'll learn why we can say that, what do consumers want from their food and what mechanisms, what tools, what sense of agency do they have or can we give them to get it? Enter consuming power, which is the theme of this year's summit. Over the next day and a half, we're going to hear from experts, as I think we've shown already, from a wide spectrum of fields who will help us understand a little bit how consumers act and what they can do to use their power to bring about change, really most importantly. It could be big changes or small changes, changes on the movement scale or changes on lunch. You'll hear about some of our own research into changes in consumers' beliefs and behaviors around food, and we'll put you to work thinking about ways you can apply what you've learned to help influence and change those beliefs and behaviors to the extent that we can get inside without the forceps, that part of our brain uh, where these things reside, and move them to a direction that leads to better food for everybody. In that process, we'll introduce you to several new concepts, we hope, including this idea of the consumer as a citizen, a citizen not of any country per se, which has its own baggage with it, but really of a citizen of an engaged, interested, and interactive global food system. I'm going to share a story because I can remember the exact moment when I realized just how fundamental the consumer was, not just to our economy, but to our society. And it was in the confusing days after 9-11. That's when the mayor of the city went on television and across all channels and told people they needed to go out and shop to prevent our economy from collapsing and to send a message to the terrorists that we would not kowtow to fear, that we, they could not take away our values and our freedom. And I, I recall, I very vividly, walking the aisles of Whole Foods, which had opened their first store on my block, actually, in the city, uh, in a daze, buying cans of tomatoes and packages of beans for my country, for my freedom, somehow. <laughs> 
And I'll confess that it, in that moment, I was proud to be helping, but I was puzzled that shopping was the most important thing I could do to bring normalcy back to New York City. It seemed bizarre. The notion that the balance of our economy was so fragile that three days loss of business could threaten to bring everything down, our whole society. It was as unfathomable, really, as the attack itself. But of course, many, many years later, you realize that in that moment, if, if the delicate balance that lay in those day-to-day -day transactions that ordinary citizens just make buying lunch or making dinner or having a snack, then obviously that's where tremendous power lies as well. So before we get on with the, the program, I, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, please, if you haven't already, and I know we've told you this a thousand times, download the Whova app. Um, we are proud to save paper and proud to be able to communicate with you a little bit more effectively, we hope, uh, using that app where you'll see bios on all the speakers. You'll be able to stay connected with all of the participants who've downloaded that app. Uh, and you'll be able to tweet out your thoughts. Um, we'll also message you from time to time about things happening or if there are changes to the program or things we're asking you to do. Um, I also want everyone to know that we're working with Twitter to track the conversation happening outside this room, and you might have seen it already, but if you use the hashtag JBFSummit 2017, we'll be able to capture your comments and post them on the board um, that will come up in between uh, some of our sessions and during our meals. I also want to acknowledge that it would be impossible for us to put on this summit or any of the wonderful programs we do at the Beard Foundation without the generous support and more importantly, the collaboration with our partners. They're listed here and they're in your, uh, maybe there. Yes, they're listed there and they are on your app um, and you'll hear more about them um, in a little bit more detail as some things unfold during the next two days. Uh, and finally, also, I want to thank the staff of the Beard Foundation and the other organizations who work throughout the year to make sure that the precious time and the trust that you give us in these two days is time and trust well spent. Um, I'll just name a couple because they're so important to the program. Ashley Koziak and Emily Rothberg at the Beard Foundation, who uh, many of you have been in touch with. Christoph Hill, Ben Carrick, and Sylvia Pediasek at uh, Karen Carpen Partners. Kristen Madden and Emily Real at Bowen & Company. And Diane Stefari, Stefani and Demira Bowles at the Rosen Group. Of course, there are many more, but I'd like a, a round of applause for all of their help in making this happen. <laughs> there are others that you will see and you'll hear from from this stage, so I didn't need to mention them there, but those are the folks who really make the whole thing work. So we're gonna get on with it now. Um, thank you for being here again. And I'd like you to join me in welcoming the founder of an organization called Arabella Advisors, which is a philanthropic consultancy responsible for maximizing the impact of billions of dollars in philanthropic support in many areas, but especially and increasingly in food system change. Eric Kessler is a trustee of the Beard Foundation who really encouraged us and helped us to realize the impact that the Beard Foundation could have in food system change uh, by helping us also to create one of our signature programs, the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change. And you'll meet several of the alums of that program, the chefs who've been through and are now changing the world. So if you'll please um, join me in welcoming Eric, who will help set a little bit more context of this conversation and why we're talking about consumers and why we are all here today. Eric, thank you. Good morning. It is so great to see so many friends here. Um, some real leaders here. Uh, tonight, Congressman Pingree is being given a leadership award. We were together last night. I asked her how she felt about um, being away from Washington with so many votes and so many things happening, so much progress, and um, she didn't know what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> Chef Ben Hall is in the house from Detroit. Ben. Um, 
Ben, ben got married four days ago. Um, we are all on his honeymoon. Uh, my friend, journalist Jerry Hagstrom is here as well. Um, Jerry's interesting. Sometimes journalists come to events like this and don't eat the free food because they think maybe there's a perception of some conflict, but if you follow Jerry on social media, you know that Jerry's actually here for the food. Um, well, uh, I want to echo uh, uh, Mitchell's thoughts um, and, and thank several people in particular on behalf of the James Beard Board, um, Susan Ungaro and her leadership over the last decade that has really enabled these impact programs to take root in the foundation. So Susan, thank you so much. The staff whose vision and execution makes this all possible, um, and, uh, and our chairman, Fred Siegel, who will be with us throughout the day, um, who's carrying the foundation into the next era uh, of the organization. Um, in my day job, I get to help philanthropists, foundations, investors think about what I consider to be the three ingredients of good food, infrastructure, policy, and consumer demand. And infrastructure, we think about all the entrepreneurs, all the businesses, all the chefs, all of the um, uh, startups whose businesses and services are enabling our good food system to take root. In policy, we think about all of the ways in which um, federal policy, state policy, local policy um, support, get in the way of, enable a good food system. And consumer demand, of course, we think about the incredible increase in consumer demand for good food over the last many years. There's no better organization than the James Beard Foundation to research, analyze, share with us the analysis around consumer demand for good food. As James Beard spends every day thinking about chefs at its center, supporting chefs, recognizing chefs, helping chefs find their voice to think about uh, uh, good food and to engage in building a good food system, uh, this conversation here about consumer demand is really at its core. Um, I recently commissioned some focus groups of swing voters, if you can imagine that there's still swing voters in America, um, uh, looking at swing voters in, um, in Kansas City and Pittsburgh, um, getting their sense of food, of our food system and their, and their interest in, in food. Um, uh, and what was interesting, we asked them about trust and who they trust, this is relevant to our last session, um, uh, and who they trust when they think about sort of what they eat. And in this order, they listed um, farmers, mothers, and chefs. If you're a chef and a mother, you get extra points. And if you're a chef mother who also has a farm, maybe you should run for president. Um, but for that reason, of course, the Beard Foundation and its core constituency, the, the, the chefs who it serves, um, are central to our food system. And when we think about consumer demand over the next two days, we should also think about policy, because so many of the programs of the James Beard Foundation's impact programs are about policy change. And we know that there's bad policy standing in the way of good food at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level. Everything on the agenda over the next two days has a policy implication. And so I challenge us all over the next two days to think about, as we have these conversations, um, what policy needs to be in place, what policy needs to be removed, what policy needs to be evolved to enable our good food system to meet the demand that we'll be talking about. It's central to the Beard Foundation, it's central to these two days, and it's central to everything that we all care about in our food system. On behalf of the board, um, thank you all for being here, uh, and let's enjoy the next two days.
Okay, so our uh, first conversation, well, the next conversation, it's the first between two peoples, is going to look at the other side of that belief, the, the information that you were given, um, and how we process or individualize or digest, if you will, there'll be a lot of food puns the next two days, I apologize. Um, I learned recently I am not a father, but I have dad humor. Um, Jason Clay is the Senior Vice President of Food and Markets and the Director of the Markets Institute of the World Wildlife Fund, where since 1999, he has literally changed the way governments, foundations, researchers, and NGOs handle issues about food and environment on a global scale. His accomplishments and awards are too many to list. They include a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award from 2012. But the thing that gives him the most credibility today, I think, is that he helped create Ben & Jerry's Rainforest Crunch. Jason will be joined by Karen Karp, our co-curator and comrade in arms for this annual summit for the last nine years. She's the founder and principal of Karen Karp and Partners, a consultancy that focuses on the interconnections between agriculture, food, policy, and people. They will look at this idea of the mechanisms of belief that Jonas's exercise illuminated and how we process the information that we receive. Thank you, please welcome to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Good morning. Jason. <clears throat> Jason and I uh, met on Friday afternoon uh, in, in my office, and I, I recorded the conversation that we had, and I said, we can just play our tape, because we just sort of got I was ready it. for that. I mean, you that were, was great. Yeah, because then you could have slept later, you right. know, things like that. But we decided to just take it, a, take it anew this morning. And um, I guess, you know, I, um, and, and what I expect Jason to do is to contradict me, even though we've already discussed these points, and that's actually how uh, you and I process information and how at least I learn from him. But I was thinking after our, call, after our talk the other day that you have this job that takes you all over the world and you see so many things in so many different contexts and cultures. And you're known for, and as Mitchell mentioned, you've received a JBF Leadership Award, um, in part for how you've translated that view, your view of the world's most important issues or urgent problems, into something that makes large organizations, food corporations, agriculture organizations, other large NGOs, shift their practices. What is it that you do? So I've often said that the issue isn't what to think, it's how to think. And I think after the last session, it's also what to think about. And how do we start to make connections? One of the things that I try to do, um, and, and it comes from a unique experience. I grew up on a farm, uh, studied food and farming and agricultural systems, studied economics, lived in many parts of the world, uh, worked with refugees, famine victims. They were all farmers, actually. Uh, and, and what I came to believe is that we're not understanding how to make connections, mm -hmm. how to think laterally, how to look at how systems not only work, but also how they might change. And that's what we try to talk about. But we're also concerned that, that we're not thinking big enough. So I remember at one point our board said, we asked us how we've been doing with our market transformation work. Uh, and I said, well, we doubled our impact in the last three years. And they said, that's not enough. It's not fast enough. Think 10x. And when you think 10x, you have to change entirely how you think and what you think about and how you make connections and who you make connections with. So let me just offer one thing about this conference. 
is everything that people, that you in this room boil down to and everybody you know, is it about consumption? Or are you people? Are you political? Are you voters? What avenues for change do we have that is way beyond consumption? We need to start making those kind of connections. So can you explain a little bit more what thinking laterally means? So if you look at the question that we had, is population the problem? Well, a little bit. There are going to be 2 billion, 2.5 billion, 3 billion more people. That's not insignificant. That's 30, 35, maybe 40% more people. But how much each of those consume is what the real problem is. And there's good evidence now that by 2050, instead of 7.4 billion or 7 billion, we're going to have 9 billion people that have 2.9 times as much income per capita. They're going to consume twice as much stuff. And there's no end in sight to that. We don't have any kind of model about consumption. We do about population. Our thinking kind of encompasses population. But this issue of consumption is a whole different thing for us to begin to think about. And we've got to get our arms around it because China doubled GDP in 12 years. And the increased consumption sent, stock, sent, sent the, the commodity markets through the roof. India doubled GDP 12 years later. Nobody's talking about it. It's going to start the same thing happening with commodity markets within the next five to 10 years. What's when, when a billion people do something, the world's going to change. So we need to understand what a billion people's impact is going to be on the food we care about, the systems we care about. Sure. We need to start making connections that people <coughs> aren't making fast enough. I've been in Canada five times in the last five years, more than I have in my entire life. Why? In 2000, in Canada, they could grow four crops between Saskatoon and Edmonton. Today, they can grow 22. In 15 years, we're seeing 50 million acres be plowed up in the northern Great Plains in Canada to plant crops. Grasslands that had never been touched by agriculture because climate is moving north, the, the food production area north. So that's the Midwest, right? Same thing's happening in Russia and Far East. But what does that mean for our bread, bread basket? Which I don't consider the Midwest, that's our row crop basket, but what's our bread basket gonna do? Look at California. Where's California gonna be in 10 or 20 or 30 years? We better be looking for the next California because it probably won't be in California. So where are we gonna produce that food? We need to start anticipating things rather than reacting to them. True, and there are some regions, I was telling you this, about a region we're working in, which is called the Mid-South Delta, which is <clears throat> 98 counties across five states from, from Kentucky, Missouri, to the top of uh, Mississippi. And we just finished this first phase of an innovation strategy, which basically gave us a lot of information and made us realize what a, a complete and utter paradigm change needs to happen there, not only to create value for the producers and for the regional economy, but also because of the things you just mentioned, that the kinds of crops they're growing right. there are not the kinds of cro crops that you're gonna be able to grow there in 15 years, did you say? Right. I thought it was 50, 15, okay. So in your work, day to day, what are, the, what are the ways you have conversations with the 
power brokers of these systems so that they can wrap their minds around this? Is it, I mean, Jonas mentioned something about um, that you find a protected place in your brain. You know, now we know scientifically what that looks like, but what's your method? So I spend about 80 times a year in a setting like this talking to people. But mostly I spend in the audience listening to people. And so I talk to people and follow up with people that don't talk to each other. I'm what I would call the extrapreneur. I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an extrapreneur. I, I make connections, I'm the honeybee. I take ideas from one person and give them to another. We need a lot more honeybees in our system because we need to think faster. Sustainability is a pre-competitive issue. We all depend on getting it right. It's not something you can put on a brand and put on a shelf. Every sector, every company depends on having raw materials. Not just from a reputational risk point of view, from a, from a goods on the shelf point of view, from a food on the table point of view. We've got to be able to address those issues. So I think we need to learn faster. And one of the ways to learn faster is to talk more, to share more. We're seeing companies now begin to share information on very basic issues. When Coke talks to Pepsi about greening in the citrus industry, it's because both of them have a billion dollar stake in getting it right. And they can't afford for it to go wrong. When General Mills and Kellogg's talk to each other about grains and getting soil health on the agenda of, of politics in the US, it's because they both have a stake in that. Mm -hmm. When Cargill starts talking about trying to buy carbon from the same farmers it buys commodities from, then we have a fundamentally different system. And so people are beginning, companies, institutions are beginning to respond, but it's late and it's slow and it's still too much one on one. So how do we, how do we get bigger? How do we get faster? We know that whatever is sustainable today won't be tomorrow. And the day after will be what we're trying to get rid of because it will be so obsolete. We also know that the bottom 25% of producers produce 50% of the impacts of any commodity but only 10% of the product. So if we want to increase productivity and reduce impacts, we don't reward the best producers. We move the best. We move the bottom. We've got to change the way we think about where the inflection points are, where the ability to make change happen is. The reaction of you all to the, to the six issues yeah. was strongest, <laughs> visceral, around the two tools that were in the group, SNAP and GMOs. So that says something about focusing on tools. What are, the what are the results we need? What are the new metrics we need? Forget the tools, throw the, kill them. If they're not working, get rid of them. But what is the result that we want to work on? We can't focus on a thousand things in the food sector. And yet if this group put up yellow stickies on the wall, we could probably fill it with a thousand different things that we could work on. But what are the two, three, five, seven? We can actually work on those. And we can work together on those things to solve them. James Beard has focused on a couple. Sustainable fishing, food waste. This is the way you make progress happen by identifying a few things, planning your flag and say, we're gonna work on this. The question is how can you take that to scale beyond that just was, chefs? That was gonna be my question. How do we take it to scale? Well, in, in our work with companies, we identified the 35 most important places on the planet from a biodiversity and ecosystem point of view. Then we identified the 15 crops that had the biggest impact on those places. And in fact, what we found 
is that where and how we produce food has more to do with biodiversity than any other human activity. And if we don't get food right, we can turn off the light and go home. So that's why we focused on food. But when we started looking at those 15 commodities, three to 500 companies touch 70 to 80% of each of those. But as you look more closely, 100 companies touch 25% of all 15. So we focused on the 100. That's where we can get the most leverage. 100 companies' demand of 25% pulls 30 to 40 to 50% of production because producers compete to sell to those better markets. We've got to figure out the same strategy around food waste. We can't afford to work one by one by one. Can we get the hospitality industry working on it? Can we get food service working on it? Can we get public schools working on it? Can we get the military working on it? Can we get retail working on food waste? These are the things that we need to shift. We think working with 7.4 billion consumers in 6,000 languages is not a good starting point. We think you've got to find the, place, the places where you can leverage and the kinds of interventions that will cascade, that will actually cause much more to happen than just what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So we've actually started working with 70 of those companies and even there we found those 70 by themselves are not enough. We've got to figure out how to create platforms where we can bring them together, where they share their data and all help each other learn faster. And the place that's happened is with global salmon aquaculture, where 17 companies have all agreed to share their data about key impacts, about investments that work and don't work, return on investments, payback period, et cetera. They're fierce competitors in the marketplace, but sustainability is not a competitive issue. It's pre-competitive. They know that the reputation of the worst producer affects the reputation of the whole industry. So they've got to bring up the bottom. That's pretty enlightened. No other sector is doing that. When can we begin to see more of that? And how can that message get across to other sectors? When are the salmon people going to speak to the beef people or the dairy people or the potato people? How do we get those, I mean, I, so when, when that was launched, I think it was 2013, that, that effort was launched. Within 24 hours, I had calls from global shrimp producers, global cocoa buyers, uh, global palm oil buyers, and global sugar buyers, all wanting to do something similar. The problem is not them talking to me. The problem is not them talking to the, the salmon people. The problem is they don't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to overcome. Cocoa has to want to do this together and they have to leave the laggards behind. You can't get every company inside to do this. You start with the best and you move them and you create a norm and move it along and pull others. They either need to get better or get out. Uh, that's kind of, as we go forward with continuous improvement, that's what has to be. And, and, and the get out has to be part of how you measure this. What are the metrics that you need to show what is better and what is less good? You mentioned a minute ago that um, we shouldn't be focusing on consumers, but actually here we are in a, in a summit that is focusing on consumers. And for some reasons that we thought were, were good to do this year because of uh, wanting to understand where a, a different source of power could come from, at least in this country, where we are a little bit lost at sea in terms of, in terms of leadership. And the next session after the break is going to be about um, looking at different uh, different collections of data and different analysis of that data and then later a little bit later on we're going to bring um, some representatives from food companies to talk 
with them about the relationship between consumers and the companies and how data get how data is a conveyor of information or not between consumers and and and, uh, and companies. So your work with companies, there are seven billion consumers on the right, planet. Right. Where do you think some of those interconnection points can best be made? So I think we decided that, to put it kind of bluntly, that consumers shouldn't have a choice about sustainable products. That every choice on the shelf should be sustainable. And if you make that your goal, then you have a lot of different strategies to get there. But educating you know, 350 million Americans or 7.4 billion people globally is not your strategy. You leave that to others. We don't buy and sell food. We don't make laws and regulations. So we can only do so much of that ourselves. But I do think that we all ought to recognize that that's something that's even more important than how consumers consume is how they vote. And maybe now we recognize this even more. But that's, that's what we need to be looking at. And that's why I started with, are we really talking about consumers or are we talking about people? Mm-hmm. People who vote, people who, have, who care about, about food. We, there's an angle there. I mean, what are we doing with social media platforms to really bring people into a discussion about food? Not to tell them what to think, but to understand how to think, how, how food affects their lives, how food affects the planet, et cetera. 17% of all images in social media are around food. Now think about what that means. I mean, this is huge. huge. This is, a, this is a, an angle. There's never been such a big angle where you could actually get at people at scale that we're not using at all. Right. So instead of just using your chefs, can you use your chefs to get purveyors involved and the purveyors to get producers involved? And can we f- begin to figure out where the bottlenecks are, where the pinch points that we can actually leverage change in the whole system. Great. Well, Jason, unfortunately, we're out of time, which also always happens. <laughs> so um, you're going to be around. I'm sure uh, a lot of people are going to want to come and find out more about how to think differently. But You know, I'm going to just say one more thing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> because you raised it about the work that you're looking at in, in Arkansas, southern Missouri, and, and, and Tennessee. And, And my work has been about trying to bring externalities into pricing. How can we bring the true cost of food production into how much we pay for it, how we think about it, et cetera. But there's a big issue here that we should all be more aware of. And when was the last time you heard of social externalities? There are lots of social externalities that's not just labor. Uh, It's people feeling included or not. We have regions of the country that we have the potential to rehabilitate both the land and the populations back into a more meaningful economy. I think this work in Arkansas and Southern Missouri and, and, and Tennessee has the potential to do that. We know that food is gonna shift. I mean, so take this one home with you as a little factoid. Right now, the cotton belt is across from Texas through Arkansas into, into Mississippi. Within 100 years, the cotton belt is going to be Southern Minnesota and Iowa in northern Illinois. Now think about what that means. And think about what that means for all the producers for where corn and soybeans are going to be produced. The corn belt's going to be on the border with Canada. This is how much food is changing and how fast it's changing. Anyway, thank you. Some really hard information to take in, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> so welcome back. 
I'm here with Christoph Hill, who is a senior consultant at KKMP and who helped us craft some of the research that we mentioned earlier that we did for ourselves this year. Because we were talking about consumers, we thought we should see if we could learn something about their behaviors and beliefs today in this, in this changing time. Obviously, people spend a lot of their time and companies spend a lot of money and um, re invest heavily in understanding consumers, but we wanted to do it from a slightly different perspective to look at those beliefs and behaviors and to see whether or not we could find any change given the change that's happening around us. You'll hear more about the results lately, but because our next segment will present um, various aspects of our own data and other um, experts looking at how we behave, how we buy, how we eat, what we think about what we eat, and why. Um, it's funny, thinking about data, and this is almost where we began the conversation about planning for the conference, because we're in this paradoxical moment where big data, we have more data than everyone's ever seen before in their lives, or even perhaps knows what to do with, uh, but we also live in this era of post-truth, which I was, uh, thought was funny to learn was the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year last year, post-truth. So how do we reconcile these two things happening? Not easy and not certainly just about food, um, but that's what we're here to talk about. So I wanted to ask Christophe to spend a moment uh, to talk about the process of creating the survey that you'll hear some results from because I think it was illuminating for all of us and from everyone's perspective. Yes, it was. So we started the process in June with Jill Gress from Radius Global. And it took so many iterations, I had no idea it was so complicated to craft 10 questions. Um, and I think we, you know, at KKMP, we think mostly qualitatively. So the process of thinking how to get valuable quantitative information was fascinating. Um, we struggled, for instance, with the problem of double-barreled double questions. We all want to ask, do you believe A and B and C and D? You know, but we were really only allowed to ask about A. You can't, you can't ask people to agree with six statements. You have to ask them to believe or to agree with one statement. And that's so hard to get out of our system. Right. Well, as we saw this morning, because we actually believe, right. uh, before we ask, we believe we have an answer. Right. So um, our friend Mitch Baranowski put this the other way as uh, saying, you know, we want the question to do all, do all our work for us, right? You have to let the question do its own work and get that. And that then came out um, also, you know, when we offer, we see, you ask a question and you have, you know, you want to offer every possible reason that somebody might believe X, right? So we want to cover religion and tradition and nutrition and TV and magazines and chefs and everything. But then you end up with a soup of possible answers and you're not going to have any single one that's particularly significant. So we have to get in this um, practice of, of simplifying and narrowing down to the thing we want to know. What's the essential thing we want to know? We can't know everything in this particular what? survey. Oh, come on. We can't know everything. We can't. <laughs> we'll ask a thousand questions. Right, a thousand questions. Everyone thousand. will fill it out, yeah. truthfully. So that was really interesting. You know, the process of how do you get information that's useful, and then that carries over into even in, thinking now into our conversations of how do you ask a simple question that gets you an answer that's valuable. And finally, um, Jill helped, you know, Jill went through all the uh, survey answers and helped us figure out what's significant, right? And we look at this chart and we say, oh my god, 60% believe this and 50% believe that. That must be significant, right? There's a 10-point difference. But it's not always. And so we have to sort of, you know, it's a, it's a practice that we see. We have to avoid the impulse to make everything significant. And I think that's an issue <laughs> when people respond to, you know, health surveys that get put in the press and not everything is necessarily significant. It's just, you know, certain things are significant and certain things are not. And allow the things that are not to be not, but you could do further research later that might tease it out more. So I think that was a very interesting process for us to understand how that works. Right. 
Well, and certainly for us at the Beard Foundation. So with that preamble, we're going to look at significance. We're going to look at the way we know things, and we're going to spend the next uh, 35, 40 minutes um, with some experts who do this for a living. And in a time when even the way that is done has changed tremendously. So thank you, Christophe, for your help with us. And now to tell us more, we're going to start with Darren Seifer, who is the Executive Director and Industry Analyst for Food Consumption for the NPD Group. If you read anything about food, you see the NPD Group cited um, multiple times, sometimes in the same article. He's been there for more than 10 years. And he's going to give us a sort of overview of the consumer research and the food sector, and then we'll be joined by three other experts in consumer research looking at different things to help us unpack this notion of how we know the beliefs and behaviors, how companies know, and how we can learn from that in this complex and complicated time. So Darren, we'll start with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great. It's always good to come after the coffee break. Uh, I want to say thank you to Karen Karp and partners for reaching out to me earlier in the year and getting me involved with this project and certainly the James Beard Foundation for allowing me to be part of this prestigious event. So I was, I was pleased when I was asked to talk about this topic. Uh, I've been in the market research world for nearly 20 years now and, and one of my observations about how our eating patterns change is that we're really not quick to change those behaviors, if, if at all. Uh, in fact, I like to use a metaphor that helps describe how our eating patterns change. So think of the movement of the tectonic plates on the planet as a, as a metaphor for how we change our eating patterns. Um, so my table over there where I was sitting, there are some people there from California. Uh, you guys are pretty familiar with fault lines, so please back me up on this when I talk about it. So they move inches per year, if, if even that much. And if you were to just look at a fault line, you know, for fun, uh, you're not going to notice change from one moment to the next. And uh, it's easy to make the assumption that it's static. But we know that it's not. Hence, we have earthquakes. So it's very similar to how we eat and drink. Uh, if you look at the top foods from one year to the next, it's going to look almost like a mirror image of one another. You're not going to see much change over that time. But if you track this over a long period of time, however, you're going to see that tiny movements each year uh, are, are happening, and that results in some significant changes over the time. So there are two main reasons for why our eating patterns are very slow to change. Number one, they're habits. If anyone of you have ever tried to kick a habit, you know how hard that is to do because many times we engage in these behaviors and we're not even thinking about what we're doing or even why we're doing it. It's ingrained in our daily activities. It's just we do it because we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, and after all, how many times have we said that we are creatures of habit? So this is another one of those habits. But second, what we eat and drink is also highly cultural. You know, a few years ago, I did a lot of travel, uh, including across this country uh, and also to places like Sweden and Germany and, and Argentina. And it, it inspired me to write a blog post called, You Eat Who You Are. That's not meant to sound like a cannibal, uh, but it's about eating part of, it's part of the culture that you're in. And in each case, in each one of those countries I went to, I was greeted with, with recipes that people have been uh, 
uh, creating for generations, it's simply part of the continuity of who they were. And it's their way of saying outsiders, this is who we are. So I just told you that things are moving pretty slowly because they're habits, but I'm about to, no pun intended, or another pun, but I'm gonna eat some of those words. And, uh, and just say that there are some rapidly changing things happening right now. It's not necessarily in the foods and beverages that we're consuming all the time, but in the food forms. And that has the potential to lead to further personalization and customization and, and culture seeking within the foods and beverages that we buy and therefore consume. So we've been hearing for a while about how the center of the store has been not performing as well. So the center of store being mostly our, our packaged items, canned, frozen items, and consumers are shifting more towards the perimeter of the store where we find our fresh items. And what we're looking at here is the number of times people have had a fresh item within, within that age group. So if you can't really see that from the back, it starts with zero to nine on the left and 70 plus all the way on the right. But essentially what we're saying here is that a decade ago, uh, compared to today, everyone under the age of 40 is now consuming more fresh foods compared to last decade. So this is a true generational shift. And, and to be clear, it's not that people are having more vegetables, they're having more fresh vegetables over a different form of vegetables. Uh, it's always interesting to see who drives these. So yes, our, when we talk about millennials and the changes that they're that are causing, this is definitely one of them. Now the interesting thing about this is that do fresh foods require more preparation or less? More, of course. But do you think consumers are allocating more, the same, or less time to preparing them? Well, I'll give you a hint. The answer is not more. Um, it's about the same, okay? So when you think about just we don't have more than 24 hours in a day, it's pretty consistent, something has to give. So there are emerging disruptors that we're, we're keeping a real close eye on these days, uh, and we're finding that it's throughout other points of that whole path to consumption where consumers are seeking to save time. So whether it be meal kits, where it's all pre-proportioned for you, uh, online grocers. Uh, and the really interesting thing about online grocers is that we find that consumers are using them to do their big trips, so they don't have to go to the store and spend all that time, and then maybe they'll go to some other outlets to get some of their smaller items. And uh, it's interestingly enough, that strategy compels people who shop online to shop at more outlets. They typically shop at about six outlets compared to only three for people who are completely offline. But it's all part of a strategy to not be as involved with the shopping, to spend less time doing it because they're engaged with more higher prep, um, higher prep foods. But the internet also has the potential to radically change our relationship with foods. Uh, it has the potential to drive sales uh, for the culturally-based foods that many of us are now seeking today. You know, and especially as we come, become a more diverse nation, uh, the, the demand for some of these hard-to-find items in retail is just going to continue to increase. So let's talk a little bit about personalization and how more technology is bringing it closer to home. So, you know, when we look at online grocers and delivery services and, and meal kits, every time we look at this, we see more people are engaged with this. Now, we're, we're not like consumer technology where about 30% of the sales uh, are online. So there, there's a little bit of a difference here. Um, and in fact, the number one reason why people tell us that they haven't bought groceries online is because 
they want to pick out their own fresh items, and they don't trust someone else to handle their own fresh items. So that, that's one of the, uh, the big um, barriers. But again, every time we look at this, more people are doing it, and 70% of people who have done it, in three months, they'll be back. So they like this. So this is why we don't think it's going to go any, it's not going to go away, and we do think it's going to continue to grow. If any of you have seen that long tail of, of retail, so basically what it's saying is that you're, essentially your fastest moving and, and biggest selling products are the ones that get the most focus, but there's a whole slew of other products that you know, are, are more niche, and uh, they don't get as much shelf space because they don't move as fast. Well, online retailers have virtually limitless shelf space. They're not constrained by the shelf space in the store. And so they're able to offer consumers that those harder to find items, the more culturally based items that, that consumers are, are really looking for these days. Um, and so this really ties very much, again, into some of our younger consumers who are moving online and looking for some of those smaller players. And, and, and you know, if, if anyone has studied the millennial generation, it, it's pretty clear that bigger isn't necessarily better with this generation. They like to look for some of these smaller niche mom and pop type outfits and, and even products. Uh, and so the internet is just one way that we're gonna see it. Even our health is getting a bit more personal these days. So any of you wearing one of these right now? Okay. What's really interesting about this and, and how it ties back in, into health is that you know, we no longer have to follow guidelines that work for the average person. Health is now becoming, what about me? This is what I can do for my health. So, and we're seeing this translate down into food and beverage too. So it's not just about, should I get this many calories a day or that, you know, it's more about specifically for me, what is the best plan that I could make? And technology is helping us do that, not just within food and beverage, but within our overall health as well. So I see this happening as well. And this is something we used to laugh at all the time. Uh, we asked people, how many of you are on a diet? And if so, what kind of diet are you on? This is the number one diet that people tell us that they're on. It's a diet of their own making. <laughs> so, so, you know, if, if ice cream is in that, you've hit, you've hit your goal. Uh, <laughs> but what really, now that we've examined this a bit more, we find that this is part of a bigger pattern of personalization and, and making your own goals. So again, it's not so much about being a one-size-fits-all plan, it's about this is my personal plan and I could hit the personal goals and, and achieve them. Because I'll, I'll tell you one thing, we definitely are not dieting more, okay? That's definitely not been on the rise. Um, some of our statistics on obesity have, have plateaued and that's great, but we're definitely not dieting more. We're also seeing some evidence that uh, there's some subcultures uh, involved in clean eating too. The vast majority of people say that clean eating is about healthy eating. And it's interesting because when you look at the items that people consider to be health, uh, clean and healthy, uh, you see a lot of organic up there. You see a lot of, you do see fresh, but you do see a lot about, about vegetables are very big up there. Uh, and the other thing to point out here are things like organic eggs, uh, free range chicken, cage free eggs. So it's not just eggs themselves, there's a specific type. And with all those items up there being organic, or, and GMOs are up there too, by the way, it says that consumers are very concerned about what happens to products before they hit the shelf. So I, I was just talking to a bunch of farmers, and I was saying, you know, consumers really want to get as close to the soil as, as they could possibly can, you know, without everything happening in between the process. 
You know, or what just, they want to know what happened to the hen, for example, before it laid the eggs. How we cook is also going through changes as well. You know, it's not just you know, that we're going to have um, nonstick pans. We want our nonstick pans to also be healthier. So we see sales of things like ceramic, cast iron, and this new red copper have been going up uh, greatly in sales. So not just the foods, but how we prepare them or what we use to prepare them uh, have been going up uh, greatly as well. And also, the makeup of our population is changing, and that's impacting the foods that we see being consumed overall. Just looking at the percent of meals where at least one item in that meal was a Hispanic dish. So clearly, the, the influence of, of Hispanics in our culture is having a, a change in what we consume overall. Now, look, this is from the 1980s to today. So this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning, those movement, the tectonic plates, very, very slow but you gotta track them over a long period of time because that's where the change occurs. So this is looking at that and how important, to, and this is just looking at within Hispanics, how important is it to you to adhere to the traditions of Latin America? Well, even when you ask millennial Hispanics, how important is that to you? They answer in the same way as all Hispanics do. It's, it's either they often or always follow the traditions of Latin America. Now, mind you, millennial Hispanics were either born here or they came here at a very young age or quite often the, is, the ta is the case. And yet, food culture it remains. So they're full-fledged American, if you will, but what they eat and how they show off to the rest of the world uh, is reflective of their culture too. So food is one of the last things to acculturate. So just some thoughts just to take away, you know, um, understanding that the pace of change in terms of how we procure our foods is, is definitely accelerating. Uh, and the technology is only going to help increase that personalization. And think about the whole supply chain, too, because what consumers are worried about is not just what they see on the shelf, but also what happened before it. And you know, our, our cultural demands are going to change, too, as the makeup of our demographics is changing. All right. So I will say thank you very much for listening to my little spiel. And now I'd like to call up a few other people to join me on the stage. So uh, Jill Gress, uh, Rachel Rothman, and Mike Lukanoff. So let me first start off by telling you about Jill. Jill Gress is the Vice President for Radius Global Market Research in their thought leadership practice. Jill has worked with Harris Interactive and the Nielsen Company and has a background in healthcare and clinical research. Rachel Rothman is the Chief Technologist and Engineering Director for Good Housekeeping Institute. Since its founding in 1900, the Good Housekeeping Institute has been a leader in consumer product evaluation. Rachel oversees consumer product testing on everything from textiles to kitchen gadgets to snack foods. And Mike Lukanoff, he is the founder of the predictive analytics firm Czar Metrics, acquired by Fishbowl in 2015. His predictive models that support business decisions in the restaurant and retail industries have revolutionized the way these industries understand consumer behavior. So, Jill? everybody all fun about data since we learned earlier that nobody believes anything I'm about to say. So <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> so the one more thing we all have to think about is 
Where do our eating habits come from? Are they from our family, from our friends, corporations, advertising, media? Could be all of them. So what we did is we undertook, we worked with the James Beard Foundation, Karen um, um, Partners, and came up with a really unique way of looking at how people are changing their eating habits. And I think it's really exciting and different to do because we're actually asking people their behaviors. What are they doing? How do they feel? Some of the things that we found, oh boy, here we go. Sorry, I'm not technology advanced even though I have a smartwatch. Uh, we found that 67% of adults have changed their eating habits in the past three years. Now I know Darren talked about how we're very slow moving tectonic plate, but I think we're going to start seeing those changes go a little bit faster and I think it's based on how we are actually getting food. It's a, I hear a little bit about the Amazon slash whole food effects. We're now actually able to get our food delivered to our home. Meal kits are now available. So we don't have to think as much. Our lives are so busy. We're all constantly on the go. We want to find a way to be healthy and happy and actually have good food. That's what our research has shown. But however, we found a small group of 79 million of us that have not changed their eating habits. That's a huge market. That's something we all, as food experts, that we need to start looking and diving in a little bit further into this market. And looking at the data, I, you guys will find I'm a more visual person than, than like these little charts and pie charts. I'm not into that. 67% um, of the people who have changed, it's not going to be very surprising. It's people who live in urban areas, younger population, people who have a little bit more income because they can spend that income on there. And then traditionally, that 33% who haven't changed, those are the people who live in rural, suburbia areas. I am one of them. I'm from Wegmans country, if you guys know Wegmans. Um, we're a little bit older, I won't say my age, and we don't make as much income. But I'm really smart because on that card it said, if you're really wealthy, you'll listen to me. <laughs> so what's the number one reason why people have changed their eating habits? People are eating more healthier. And actually, we actually offered the option of people to write in why are they eating healthier or why do they believe that. They're eating less junk. That's their biggest thing. They're talking about the junk food. They're trying to get away from their junk food. They're trying to be more mindful about what goes into their bodies. We're finding that 40% of them are saying they're cooking more at home. And even surprisingly, the 29% are actually eating more locally. In converse to that, we're finding that people who haven't changed their eating habits they're just, they're happy, they're content. They're happy with what they're doing. We also see people who just don't really care. I don't know who is that, those people. That'd be an interesting group to look at. And then we have this new, maybe not new, but it's an interesting market and segment. Are those people who want to change but don't know how? Are, is it because they, there's so much information out there and they don't know what's real, what's not real. I'm sure we could all look out in every single article and there'll be something about coffee is the worst thing ever for you in another article. Drink at least two cups a day and you'll be healthier. So understanding influence. Influence is a huge impact on our behaviors. Whether we're gonna try and quit smoking, that's a huge impact. What is your life around that? What's impacting you? You know, some of the things that we found is that we asked people beyond cost because we know everybody is going to answer that question. Cost is the biggest influencer of their food purchasers. So we wanted to find out what was that beyond that flavor of food. 
So that card that we had down there, that a third of Americans don't think that food is important to their eating habits, not according to our research, because we took away cost, because we know cost is such a huge impact. The second top reason was finding out that people actually um, were wanting to be healthy and wellness. And we found some similar evidence in finding that people believed that food and health are closely connected. So we found that, you know, according to the CDC, there's a report out there that 35% of us are overweight and obesity is rising. I'm wondering if now that people are being healthier, are we going to finally start to see that number drop? Those who haven't changed their eating habits, um, as I mentioned, are very content. And then when we're looking further into who and what actually influences everybody's, we wanted to get people's perception of this information. And we found that there are two segments that came out of this. Outside influencers, everybody in this room is an outside influencer. And then we have our inside or self-influencers, tradition, habits, religions, some of the things you can think about when you're talking about habits, I always relate it to, I grew up in a very Italian home. We always had cannolis at Thanksgiving dinner. That is my tradition. I don't make them, but I've got to learn how to do it. But we're finding that there's more being influenced by outsiders than tradition. And when looking at those, are those causing issues that, we're, that Darren was talking a little bit about culture? Are we start, we're going to see our next generation, are they going to start not continuing those traditions on? Are the traditions aren't there because of the fact that parents are working, parents are out of the home more often, they're not cooking as much at home? Well, the outside influencers, I apologize, I'm kind of looking over here in my corner. Um, the segment has changed their eating habits. They also care about a lot of things. They care about the impact of the food that they eat and what goes ingredients goes into their food. Consumers who lean towards that self-influencer, they're, they're actually loyal to their brands and their, their stores that they go to. Yet we still are looking at that one small subject group of those people who want to change but just don't know how. Okay, I put one pie chart in here, one graphic in here. And what we're finding is that overall food values are positive. People are believing that organic is healthier. They want to have more control over the food that they eat, so they're going to be cooking at home. And healthy food is as delicious as non-healthy food. <laughs> but some of the things, we did see a little bit of a split. And as you can see, those four first two areas. Is GMO part of a healthy diet? And are food companies producing healthy food? And, is that, and I'm wondering if that has come about. We didn't dive further into this. Could it be that there is lack of education that's out there and awareness? I personally did not know enough about GMOs until I started working on this research. So to me, that's where I am looking at it. But then we looked at, we dove a little bit deeper, of that group that does not believe healthy foods are as delicious as non-healthy food. Because I think that's something very important that to everybody is flavor, that taste. And we found that those people don't believe that food and health are connected. They actually found that food isn't the most important thing to them. And the majority of them don't believe that the GMOs are part of a healthy diet or that, that organic is healthy. So that's an area that we can move the counter, as they say, of trying to understand who these people are. 
And as leaders in the industry, we can make these changes. As you see, the majority of Americans are saying that the outside influencers are impacting their behaviors. So we need to look deeper and dive into these audience, the future generation, those people who want to change don't know how, people who are confused about GMOs. Those are what we need to try and work around and try and dive deeper so we can explain a little bit further to them. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to echo Jonas's statements and say I am not a foodie. I am not a food expert. I like food a lot, and I get to spend my days filled with lots of experts, so I'm very fortunate. Um, so a bit on me. I am Rachel Rothman, and as um, they mentioned, I'm the chief technologist at the Good Housekeeping Institute. Uh, part of that job entails oversight of our consumer product testing and our surveying. Um, and we have a tool in which we are able to survey regularly tens of thousands of readers who are really demonstrative of the American public. Through this, we're able to keep uh, an even better pulse on the evolving behaviors and habits of the American people. Big green one, there we go, sorry. Yeah. Pregnancy brain, I plead. Um, more on that in a moment. No, big in the top. The other big green button, I apologize, guys. Um, first, let's start off, uh, for those of you who may be a little less familiar with good housekeeping, I'll spend just a few moments giving you a quick catch up on who we are and where we are now as a brand. Good housekeeping is all about preparing women to lead their best life, whether that's them getting ready in the morning, caring for their families, engaging in their communities, blending work and home life, or finding other meaningful ways to express themselves. We're like your savvy best friend who's always there with expert tips and recommendations to make your life just a little bit easier. Content covered ranges from beauty and fashion to our feature-rich reports uh, from the Institute to our delicious food pages and just about everything in between. If you think of the home as the launch pad for your day, uh, we're touching on just about everything you're gonna be encountering from the moment you wake up in the morning until the moment you go to bed at night. And we'll even recommend a good mattress and a, a tracker in between. Our audience is large um, and continually growing. Between print, digital, and social, we have one of the largest uh, global audiences of women. We reach over 36 million uniques each month, uh, and they're very engaged with our content. And we keep growing across different platforms. We have more Facebook followers than anyone in our competitive set, and our monthly engagement surpasses Better Homes and Gardens, Family Circle, O, and Red Book combined. So what exactly is the Institute? It's been trusted for over 115 years, and it's the authority behind Good Housekeeping's product recommendations, our consumer safety and advocacy, and of course, the Good Housekeeping seal evaluations. All of this is determined based upon exhaustive, unbiased testing by our team of scientists, engineers, and culinary masterminds. Everything the brand does is underscored by the backing of the Good Housekeeping Institute. If you couple this uh, with our editorial team, we really have an unrivaled staff that's able to provide delicious, easy, innovative, time-saving content to make our readers' lives just a bit easier. The background shot, if you guys can see, is of our test kitchen. I'm a frequent taste tester for them these days. Uh, at the Institute, we also have six labs where we're testing products continually, including our kitchen appliances lab, where all kitchen-related products are tested. You can see just a few uh, select members of our staff here, including Susan Westmoreland, who is in the audience, who oversees our food content and various brand extensions and partnerships in the food space. And we also have an RD on staff in uh, Jackie London. 
So now to the meat of this upcoming discussion on insights and stats uh, that we were able to gather from our vast audience. We pulled the exact same survey with our audience and we found very similar uh, responses, which is you know, good to say for the, for the data. Uh, part of what we do at the Institute are these consumer evaluations. We also do in-lab product testing and we have consumer, uh, consumers testing the products for us as well. But this combination of quantitative and qualitative feedback only provides a snapshot of the story. So for us, it's all about uh, compiling data in lots of various forms. We do surveying, research, in-person interviews, syndicated studies, and we also have the testing going on within the labs and with consumers in their homes in real life consumer settings. We use these to better understand her, what's important to her, and what's influencing her purchasing and eating habits. We find that the original surveying, though, is able to provide clarity around what she cares about in real time, so that we're able to provide the best resources and recommendations and figure out what we should be serving up next. Uh, the food puns just will continue, so whoever said that earlier, very true. Uh, what we have learned about our reader through all these various means, for one, she's a frequent and powerful spender in the food arena. Our reader spends a lot on food purchases, roughly $162.5 million annually in food, warehouse, and club stores in the past year. She goes to the grocery store nearly two times each week. She's cost conscious and usually prepared for her visits. We also know that her purchases are motivated chiefly by health factors, followed closely by traditions to a lesser degree. Our findings also, through uh, both the research that we just did, as well as syndicated research and speaking with our readership, um, reinforce one solid takeaway. People's diets are changing, or at least they want them to. You may have heard some of these stats uh, just moments ago by Jill, uh, but additional surveying we have done online, again, reinforces this. People are becoming more health-minded and experimental with food, yet they're still craving these convenient options. We're also seeing that individuals are mindful of the planet, whether for them that means buying natural or giving up the convenience where they feel as though they are being more environmentally considerate. They're also very keen on information and crave the truth in advertising on such products. Uh, based upon all of these insights that we're continually gathering, how are we able to serve our reader and the American people? For starters, consumers can look to the GH seal as a symbol of trust and reliability. Consumers are aware and recognize the emblem and are more likely to purchase products with the emblem if given equal, otherwise indistinguishable products. Especially in a day of such high consumer mistrust and confusion, which we're continually hearing about uh, today, we distinguish ourselves with an infallible record of excellence. We also recently introduced the Good Housekeeping Nutritionist Approved Emblem, recognizing the particular need in the food sp space for more clarity. As our studies continually reinforce, people care more about what they're putting into their bodies today, but in general are discontent with food claims. That's where this emblem comes into play. It provides a solution for those who want to be both health conscious and lifestyle savvy. It enables consumers to maximize their personal health and well-being on multiple fronts, fiscally, socially, and environmentally as well. All products bearing this emblem are vetted by our RD to first make sure they meet nutritional standards, and then they are also uh, ensured that they taste good. And then on top of this, we're laying it to ensure that we're demystifying food labels and giving consumers confidence in their purchases in the food aisles. We also deliver really rich content in our food pages each month. We have several recurring rubrics in our food pages that our readers have come to love and trust. We usually open the section with a seasonal or trendy item, something light and fun to engage our readers and draw them in. There's magazines in the back you guys can all grab on your way out. Our Ask Susan column um, will dive into something that may be newsy or trendy and answer reader questions. 
I personally love our from scratch section so that I can uh, work on something that's kind of project oriented, something like nut butters, um, and it'll teach our audience how they can make it from scratch and then different ways that they can incorporate it into their food lifestyles. Our feature story provides an opportunity to dive more into uh, a single topic around this time of year. It tends to be Thanksgiving, of course. But our most popular pages in the book uh, are continually our weeknight easy section. This features recipes that people are able to make in under 20 minutes of active time. We leverage simple ingredients that are readily available. A reader summed up the section perfectly by saying, I really love the simplicity of the recipes and how they all use easy to get ingredients and don't take a ton of time to prepare. They're unpretentious, healthy, and family friendly. So hopefully that gives you a, a brief snapshot and you have a better understanding of why I personally, from Good Housekeeping, am up here. Um, but again, we're always being driven by our guiding principles of serving up delicious ideas, genius innovations, style-savvy solutions, compelling life stories, and best-in-class products. We stand behind it all so you can rest assured it's been tried and tested, and you can most certainly trust it. And I'll hand it off to Mike. Morning. Morning. So, uh, buzzwords are, are, are a funny thing. You know, sometimes they, they hype concepts, uh, and by the time um, you, know, the, you get through the hype cycle, uh, the reality of, of where you are doesn't seem quite as important as it really is. I, I would say that, that, that data and big data disruption is a lot more important than, than, uh, that, than we may think it is. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this conceptually and, and what my point of view is. I, I analyze data for a living specifically to try and influence people's behaviors. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit in that context. Uh, first, in 2017, more data will have been created than in the entire cumulative history of mankind. All right, so why aren't we all smarter? Well, some of us might be. I'm going to talk a little bit about this. So if you think about some of the things that are really changing the world right now, one of the things, the data that, that's really coming into being, some of it's coming from social, and a lot of it's coming from digital, and sensors, and mobile, right? This is where these new data sources are coming from. Now, if we think about the last real media revolution, it really came with, uh, with radio. And when you think about what radio brought with it in terms of uh, political changes and, and really you know, changes in the world, we're in a similar place right now. Now the difference then was that you had to have a radio station, you had to have transmission, you had to have a government, something along those lines, in order to reach the masses. And now we're in a place where anybody can actually reach the masses. Uh, and we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out what this means. Now, shouldn't this mean then that if all this data is, is proliferating, shouldn't knowledge be proliferating with it? Well, that's not necessarily true because knowledge prol proliferation actually takes some additional steps. So data creation is just one piece of it. You've got to create the data and store it, and data creation could be anything from a tweet to a photograph uh, to, uh, to an online post. Uh, but then it needs to be transformed and then disseminated in order for it to, make, uh, to become knowledge. Now, data creation and storage and dissemination are rocket-powered right now but our ability to transform it is moving at a much slower pace. So things are really starting to become puzzling when we start talking about fake news, when we start talking about I don't know what to believe and so forth. 
A lot of this is because transformation is moving at a much slower pace than the way that data and information is actually being created and then disseminated to the masses. So what does this mean, right? So everything from fake news to, uh, you know, to, to revolutions around the world. You know, there's good and there's bad to it, and we're just starting to grapple with how we actually deal with it. The technological, te technological acceleration is starting to really, really turn exponential. So there's a lot of potential upside, but there's also a lot of danger. So how does this specifically affect the restaurant industry? I'm going to talk about it in a couple ways. First, consumers are changing how they are making dining decisions. And second, um, the acceptance of, of innovation is starting to accelerate. What do I mean by, the, by, by consumer decisions? So the consumer decision journey, this was actually based on a study uh, that McKinsey and company did uh, almost 10 years ago, followed up by a Harvard Business Review study that examined how people are actually making decisions in the modern environment. It used to be this sort of funnel where you go through all your potential choices and you just sort of end up on one. What McKinsey said was, you know, there's this active evaluation stage. Everybody, when you're thinking of a purchase, you start with some idea of, of what those purchase options might be. Then you go into this active evaluation stage. Active evaluation used to only be reserved for things like uh, TV or radio or, um, <coughs> excuse me, or a car where you go out and you get the consumer reports, see what your options are, and you do a little bit of research. With mobile devices, this is becoming a, a, an active part of every decision that you make, even as you make a dining decision, right? How many people use Yelp when they're a new, in a new town or standing outside a chain restaurant and thinking, ah, maybe there's a better option, right? So, so there's a purchase catalyst now where if you think about being able to reach people during that time when they're actually trying to make a decision, you're actually going to get better results. After the point of purchase, some interesting things happen. That's when you enjoy, you bond with the product, and then you're most likely to advocate for it. So what this is happening is, it's, if the experience is good enough, then you go into this loyalty loop, which is why the industry is all hung up on, you know, let me get a new loyalty program. But a second thing happens, which is this social influence. Your perception and your adv you advocating that brand is going to go into this active evaluation stage which is then going to feed the next people who are trying to make a decision, right? Now this whole dynamic is really important whether you're a large chain restaurant or whether you're an ind independent restaurant because this is happening to you, right? And you don't, you're powerless if it's happening to you, but if you understand what the dynamic is and you can actually own it and change the way that you're able to interact with this and actually alter what your future is going to be. The second thing that's happening is that with all of this new <clears throat> data and information, the diffusion of innovation is really starting to accelerate. What does this mean? So all ideas and all new innovations go through this cycle, where initially there's some innovators and then some early adopters, and then the early majority latches onto it, right? And there's a tipping point round about where the early majority starts to get on, where it starts to become really financially viable, right? So if you think about how all this information is starting to cycle through much faster, uh, a lot of the ideas that are coming, say, from fine dining and from uh, more innovative sectors are starting to really catch fire a lot faster, or they're starting to peter out quicker, right? And I'll give you an example, right? And this is not a scientific example necessarily, but if you think of just being able to go to something like a Google Trends and identify a couple of the different things that either are catching fire or not, right? 
So sriracha would, is a great example, right? You know, it's, it's uh, you know, hui fong <laughs> foods, you know, it's been around since, since 1980. Around about 2010, uh, David Chang started to talk uh, about it, started to really uh, come into culinary circles. Uh, round about um, Huffington Post calls it the coolest hot sauce in the world, right around 2014. And then just a couple of years later, Thrillist says, who killed sriracha? Because it's so overhyped, right? And then it comes to McDonald's menu, right? <laughs> so if you think of the hype cycle, you know, and how you can start to think about these things in terms of, you know, innovation, um, you know, all of this information is now available to all of us. Thank you.